Well, if you're visiting today, I want to start off to, to talk about, we're, we're starting our Advent series today, um, and it's called Christmas from the Beginning. And, you know, everyone, I don't know what everybody's background is in regard to December and Advent. I mean, I, I had very little to no church background when I was young, and I would hear of the Advent, and I, I thought, well, that was maybe just something the Catholic Church did, or, you know, different, different things like that. And, um, and then as I've grown, I, I'll be honest with you. Can, well, let me do this. Can I first talk to you person to person rather than pastor to person? Can I do that first? Um, I don't do Christmas well. Um, I struggle keeping Christ the glorious center of December. I don't know if you do. Uh, that's why I, I don't do Christmas well and why I love Advent so much. <laughs> um, the word Advent means coming. It just means coming. It means the coming of the Lord. And, and whoever the people were that thought that this would be a good idea, somewhat similar to Lent to where you took time before the, the celebration, the sober realization of the, the Son of God died for my sins, and on the third day he rose from the dead. And what, I don't want to take that lightly. I don't want to just call, let some bunny rob the glory of it, right? You know, I want, to, I want to prepare my heart for the resurrection Sunday. And Advent is similar. It's, it's how do I keep my focus on Jesus when there is a ton of distraction? And I'm easily distracted. I don't know about you. I mean, I th there's three ways, and see if any of these relate to you. One is with sorrow. So I'm going to just kind of come over here, and aren't you guys fortunate? This is the sorrow section. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you're not the sorrow section. Um, but isn't it a reality? Not everybody's happy about Christmas right now based on what you're going through or what you've been through. So can we do a little name that tune, like finish the lyric? How about this? So do you guys get emotional about Christmas music? I asked Eric and Jordan that this this week because I was thinking, am I the only one? Am I the only one that hears chestnuts? Sing it with me. Roasting on an open fire. So remember, so the guys, Bing Crosby, Nat King Cole, those guys, they were alive when I was a kid, okay? So this was like live stuff. This wasn't just Muzak, you know, and... Um, Songs like that. How about this? Have yourself. See, you're getting me emotional, okay? Uh, you know. Um, uh, what, which, which, what's the one I started with? Chestnuts. Chestnuts. Um, I'll be home for Christmas. <laughs> Thanks, Terry. <laughs> I don't know if you're helping me, Terry, or hurting me. Um, Christmas for us, my, my parents had a, the most hateful marriage that I've ever witnessed. So decorating trees. So this is, so Bing Crosby, Nat King Cole singing in the background. We're decorating the tree. My mom and dad start fighting. They start throwing Christmas ornaments at each other. I mean, glass, cuts. Uh, some of our Christmas ornaments were hard as rock and bruises and then Christmas Day after they got divorced, it was always, I don't know if any of you experienced this, that we lived in the same town. They lived in the same town, and it was always, well, you spent more time with your mom than you did your dad, or your dad with you than your mom. And so I hear those songs, and I, my, my mom and dad used to sing those songs, and there's something sweet about it, but man, there is something sad. It's just easy to be given over to the sad part of it, you know. So that's a net thing I have to navigate. I get saved... And this poor woman, she married what, if, 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 if Scrooge and the Grinch, this is so weird because I thought this morning, if they had a baby, but that's just even worse. That's just sick. So, so not if they had a baby, but if, if Scrooge and, yeah, Scrinch. It's Scrinch. I just created the character. If there was a Scrinch, this poor woman married Scrinch because after I get saved, I start just, this is no celebration of Jesus. Look at all those lights. I may as well have gotten Max the dog, you know, and, and gotten the sleigh and stole all of your presents. Um, so self-righteous, guys. And can you, and boy, and what a witness for Jesus I was. Oh, and, and God loves you. 
all of your lights and your bow bangles and ching changles and all that kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> Sorry, Jen just said, we just watched the, there's a new, there's a new Grinch out, have you seen the new Grinch? It's a kinder, gentler Grinch, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Anyway, back over here. So, okay, over here. So suffering, sorrow, sadness, self-righteousness, selling and buying and selling and buying and, and uh, never feeling like I had enough to really bless my kids and I wish I could do more and oh, we're doing too much. And I mean, just, I need a mission in December. I need, I need help. I need you to help me. I, I, need, I need this. To, there's nothing in Scripture that says, oh, thou shalt do Advent. So this isn't any kind of command from God or anything. I just think, even when, even when the folks des- decided that let's celebrate Christmas on December 25th, uh, it's the darkest month of the year, so that's kind of cool. So here's the light shining in the darkness. That's not a bad kind of a theme. But it was, it was birthed in a horrible time of the culture celebrating Saturnalia and all this celebrating and revelry. And, and they're trying to do Christmas in the midst of all this. It's, it's always been that way. We're always a distract. We, we're just all distracted in some way. Either with your suffering you're distracted, your self-righteousness, or just consumerism, materialism. That's why we do Advent. That's why we do Advent. So we hope that these next few weeks will help you and be an encouragement to you and that, that we can, as a church family, really experience Jesus as the glorious center of saving grace. Amen? Amen. Well, why don't you open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 3. So we're calling it Christmas from the beginning. And that's because we're actually going to let God use his word in Genesis to teach us um, the, the story of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So before we read, um, you know, I think of all the hindrances that I just described to you uh, that keep us from, keep, from putting Jesus as the glorious center of our Christmas celebrations. I think one of the main temptations, and this is really due probably to the pulpits uh, in the United States and beyond. Um, One of the main temptations, I think, is our tendency to take Christmas out of context. Could have called the series that, Christmas in Context, or bringing clarity to Christmas. But we have a tendency to take Christmas out of its context. We tend to treat it as though it were a standalone event on our calendar that had no historical reason for its existence. So that's an important question, isn't it? Why does this thing even exist? Why does this whole celebration of the birth of Christ exist? Why is it necessary? Those are huge issues, aren't they? Uh, We act like there's no historical reason for its existence and no final destination that it pointed to. You know, did you know that the celebration of Christ's birth really points away from itself to a second coming? (laughs) So so we're not just going to, in our study for these next few weeks, we're not just going to study the first coming of Christ. We're going to include the second coming of Christ. So those, that's, that's helping us keep it more in context. But if we take it out of context, we misinterpret Christmas. We just will. Uh, we, we'll make it what we want it to be. We'll conform it to what we want it to be, right? It's got to save me from my sorrow. It's got to save me from my loneliness. It's got to save me. We put a lot of pressure on Christmas. So let me give you an example. Imagine a man named Romeo who wrote a three-page love letter to his girlfriend. See, you don't think I have culture. I have culture, right? (laughs) Okay. And he's wanting to communicate his affection for her and his desire to make a lifelong commitment to her in marriage. But somehow, the envelope became unglued in the mail, and pages one and three fell out of the letter. A postal worker saw the unglued envelope and he took it upon himself to reseal it and send it on its way, not knowing it was missing two of its three pages. So when Juliet sees the letter from Romeo, (laughs) wherefore out? Anyway, never mind. Uh, 
I don't have that much culture. I didn't, I don't, I didn't memorize the lines very well. She joyfully opened the letter and she begins reading page two as though it was the only page to read. She reads the following. Oh, precious Juliet, though our relationship has been a joy in the past, I don't think I can do this any longer. You're living on the East Coast and my living on the West Coast has become more and more difficult. I've grown weary of only seeing you once every few months and this must come to an end. I need to talk with you. Did you ever remember those things when you're dating somebody? Hey, we need to talk. I always hated that because I've always meant that's always like, <laughs> cut my head off, you know. I need to talk to you as soon as possible so that we can bring this season of our lives to an end in such a way as to spare each other any further pain. Okay, so put yourself in Juliet's shoes. You've read that, and that was the only page of this three-page letter that you had to read. How would you have interpreted what he's saying? The dude is breaking up with me. The dude is breaking up with me. This is how bad a marriage proposal I gave to Jan. I'm giving Jan a marriage proposal. She's thinking I'm breaking up with her. You guys, I, anyway, we'll talk about it at the marriage conference. Janet, I have set the bar so low for you guys to have a better marriage than, um, anyway, if she, what, what if she were able to have read page one, which celebrated, here was page one, it celebrated his fortune and how they came to fall in love with each other and the increasingly valuable gift she is to his heart and life. And then what if she turned to page three and read of his undying love for her and his desire to pay the highest price so that their separation can end and they can spend the rest of their lives together? Page one and three would have made a big difference, wouldn't they? Would have pointed to maybe a happy ever after. If, they would have, if she would have had the whole story, I fear that we do something similar to Christmas. I think we can treat Christmas as though the only page we have for the Christmas story is Luke chapter 2. I think we, just, we can just, oh, Luke 2. And it's true. It's powerful. It's powerful in and of itself. It's the Word of God. But God didn't give us just Luke 2. He wants us to interpret well. He wants us to have a context. He wants to magnify the glories of his grace in giving Christ to us. If we only look at a segment, we rip a segment out of its context, we're going to be sure to lose sight of the problem of evil and sin. Don't you see that everywhere around us? The fearful prospect of judgment and the sure promise of salvation. You know, the doctrine of God's judgment needs to be as present in December as it is any other time. And we'll be sure to lose sight of the fact that this world is not our home. And we're only here to live on gospel mission in preparation for the eternal joy that awaits us when we meet Jesus face to face. When we treat Christmas like it's page two of a three-page love letter, we'll be sure to misinterpret it and be tempted to make an idol out of a seasonal holiday that we hope could heal our broken hearts, cure our loneliness, or provide some kind of lasting satisfaction and joy. But when we see Christmas in its context, we do remember the problem of sin and that led to the necessity of Christmas to reveal the Savior of sinners. We remember the poverty and the persecution and the punishment that the Savior was born into and to suffer and to endure so he would rescue us. And we remember that the Savior will come a second time to usher us into our joyful and eternal home with him. So we're going to give you the main point before we read the text, because I want you to, you evaluate this. Is what I'm saying is the main point of the sermon? Is it the main point of the scripture? If I'm missing it, we'll try harder next time. But I think, I've, I think we're close. I think we're close. So here's the main point. We must first see Christmas as a judgment so that we can celebrate it as a joy. Would you stand with me as we read? Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hmm. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field? On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Oh, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you, for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, your dust, and to dust you'll return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Heavenly Father. Oh, we're here to know the whole story. Oh, God, we want, to, we want to understand your word in the context in which you inspired it. Because we need you that much. We, we don't want to have a wrong idea of who you are. We don't want to have a wrong idea of why you came and why we needed you to come so much. And God, we don't want to... Lord, I've never known chestnuts roasting on an open fire to do anything to transform my life. But your word and your spirit are transformative power. And we want to know you better. We want to shine the light of Christ more brightly, maybe in December than ever. And that's going to take a brighter light with all the lesser lights calling out to people for their attention. So would you help us, Lord? Be glorified in the preaching of your word. Please bless the precious ones sitting here. Those who are believers, would you edify them, comfort them, strengthen them. Someone here who is not a believer, we pray that you'd give them saving faith to follow Jesus today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The very beginning of your notes, um, you know, I'm, I'm using the word Christmas a lot, and, and that's always debated amongst pastors and people who just really, you know, enjoy the study of the word. Should we always use, should we even use Christmas? Should we use the words the scripture uses? Incarnation. We, it's, it's God incarnate. Christ is God incarnate. 
And yes, we should. Yes, we should. So I'm using the word Christmas with this in mind. And I thought, nope, that was a great time to be able to turn our eyes to just let's bask in that for a minute. This is from the Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith. So I'm going to ask you ask for you to read this along with me out loud. So this is the description of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and who he is. And he didn't just come into being uh, in, in Bethlehem in a manger. So would you read this with me? In the fullness of time, God the Father sent his eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, into the world as Jesus Christ. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, taking on himself a fully human nature with all its attributes and frailties, yet without sin. In this union, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in the one person of the Divine Son without confusion mixture, or change. Our Redeemer acted in and through both His human and divine natures in ways appropriate to each, with both natures being preserved and neither diminished by the other. Yet both His human and divine natures are united and find expression in the one person of the eternal Son. Thus, our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, is fully God and fully man, able to be our all-sufficient Savior and the only mediator between God and man. Amen. So when we're talking about the celebration of Christmas, I'm, let's, let's keep this in mind. We're talking about the incarnation of the Son of God who has existed for all of eternity. So now let's go through this. The context for Christmas. Context for Christmas is the fall of man. And didn't we see that in Genesis 3 verses 1 through 7? You remember, God created the world as a perfect backdrop for men and women to know Him and love Him and trust Him and enjoy Him. All that He created obey one commandment, and gave, they had grace for that, and to fill the earth with his glory through their love for him and each other. So there you have Genesis 1 and 2. They, all, they had all that they needed for earthly happiness and eternal joy. They lacked nothing. They had any and every kind of food and the multitude of trees and plants in the garden. Adam and Eve, picture this, had a sinless relationship with each other as husband and wife. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? And most significant of all, they had God. They had God. God himself was their greatest gift, their greatest joy and treasure. And they had a relationship with him that was not corrupted by sin. Wow, beautiful. But there was another character introduced to us in Genesis 3 a being called the serpent. Revelation 12, I put this, this scripture in your notes, makes it clear who this is. This is the great dragon. He was thrown down, that ancient serpent. So the first book of the Bible, last book of the Bible, bring clarity to who this is, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So remember, evil is not some sort of mere character flaw that has infected a few people in a world of mostly good people. Evil was and is embodied in a rebellious, worship-hungry, hate-filled fallen angel who still prowls about like a roaring lion today, seeking whom he may devour, including December. He's motivated by hate for God and anyone who follows God. He seeks to blind people from God and do all he can to keep them from God and from God saving them. He wants people for himself. He's like that, that rotten, know-nothing boyfriend that doesn't care about sacrificing his life for his girlfriend. He just wants her for himself. Guess where he learned that? 
Girls, please, very easy to spot a guy who's going to love you like Christ and a guy who loves you like the devil. He's going to want you for himself until he's done with you. He wants to be their king. And he's going to tell every lie in the book to deceive them into thinking they can find happiness, all the happiness they want, in the world and not in the Lord. That's what he lives for. Serpent comes to the woman. Do you notice? As though she were the head of the household. Do you ever stop to think about that? He's not only, guys, he's not only trying to corrupt the relationship between God and man. He's trying to corrupt the complementarian relationship that God began when he created Adam and Eve. Complementarianism had its birth right in the garden. And so Satan, he's wanting to do corrupt. He's wanting to separate them from God and he's wanting to separate them from each other and from the right relationship that would make them thrive. So he deceitfully begins a dialogue in such a way that lulls her into being comfortable with evil. So please listen to what I said. Don't, isn't that happening moment by moment today? We're living in a time, well, it's always been that time. We are living in a significant time with all of the distractions. Let me see if I, I'm not going to come with, with the, the, an obvious evil before you. I just want to make you comfortable. I want to make you comfortable with evil. I want to make you comfortable with questioning a loving God. So even before he's... so You see, he didn't just cut to the chase, did he? He's coming. He's cuddling up with her. He's cuddling up with her. To be, he wants her to be comfortable in the presence of an alternate authority that seeks to replace the authority of God's Word. He's seeking to establish his lies as authoritative. And as such, he is seeking to establish the feelings and opinions and desires of Adam and Eve as authoritative. So he's coming as, as the voice of an alternate authority. But what he'd love to do is for you to turn your eyes away from God and now for your emotions to be your authoritative voice. When you've been in ministry, as long as God's given me grace to be in ministry, you, you hear a lot of sad, heart-wrenching stories. One of them was between two people in a church that I used to serve, and this couple, uh, husband and wife, used to go on vacation with another husband and wife. And of the two couples, one would go to bed earlier, this one would go to bed earlier, but two would stay up later. Well, you can, don't have to think very hard about what's going to happen. They ended up committing adultery together, and, and the woman, as we're confronting them, the adulterous woman, says, well, I know it's wrong, but God wants me to be happy. And so I'm happy with this man. That must make it God's will. What was her authoritative voice? Her feelings. It wasn't God's word. So look what Satan's doing. He's saying, hey, look at these church. Man, it's, it's, it's good to the eyes. It's good to the taste. And you know what? If you eat of this, here's true freedom. You can decide for yourself what's right and wrong. You don't need anyone else. Doesn't that doesn't sound like, like growing up? Doesn't that sound like being a kid? I can decide what's right and wrong. <laughs> I, don't need, I don't need mom and dad to tell me that I shouldn't have 17 Oreos before dinner. I, I, I know better. And listen, that's before we, we're not pounding on kids, I'm a sophisticated six-year-old. <laughs> I, I, still, I still have authoritative voices. My bitterness it's an authoritative voice that makes me feel justified in not forgiving that person that hurt me so much. So this, is, this was all happening in the garden, and that's what he's doing. He's, he's wanting you to get used to not being in your word. He's wanting to try to, to get you to not be devoted to, to Scripture and let me come alongside you. Oh, hey, listen, we'll be friends. Did God really say? You see what's happening. This is the context for Christmas. Guys, it's a, it's a story that's not told enough. It's, God's telling it, but it's not one I don't, think, I don't think we have been very good at digging into. He's wanting to, to make it normal to question the goodness and wisdom of God. 
And so that's why he says, did God actually say that you shouldn't eat any of the trees of the garden? And, and then the big kicker was, oh, you won't die. You won't die. Oh, come on. I had friends like that. Did you? <laughs> oh, you won't get in trouble with your parents. The cops, you know, kneels over in the corner, but he can only see a few of us. You're not going to die. You're not going to get caught. What he's, what he's doing big time is he's tempting her to doubt God's goodness by pointing her to something that would be better than God and in place of God. So that's where I want to stop for a minute. Where are you struggling right now? Where are you tempted to doubt God's goodness? Because come on, let's be honest with you. I do. I doubt God's goodness. I, I doubt God's goodness too often. It usually has to be with a good thing I desire. It's not a bad thing I desire. But it's not coming in, the, in how I want it to come or when I want it to come. And then I start wondering, are you good? He's tempting her to believe that true freedom will actually come when she disobeys. That's when you're going to be really free. Uh, listen, his commands, are, that's, what's com that's what's paralyzing you. If it weren't for all those commands, imagine how free you'd be. All those rules from God. You won't die. You be the standard of what's right and wrong, not God. That's so deceptive. God's really robbing you of what would make life truly free and fun. If you're going to be really, really happy and fulfilled, that happiness and that fulfillment is not going to be found with a God that rules you with commands. It's going to come from you judging for yourself what's right and wrong and doing what you want when you want it. So that's why there's these phrases, oh, gender is fluid and it's fun and you decide what you want to be, not some divine design and command from some God who probably doesn't even exist. Love is love. <laughs> love is love. And true freedom is exercising your sexuality with whoever you want as much as you want without any need for legal commitment of marriage between one man and one woman. A woman has freedom over her own body. I mean, you just see here again and again. That deceiver is still working his lies. And Eve seems to become preoccupied, even obsessed with the tree. In Paradise Lost, Milton describes Eve as bowing down in worship before the tree. She's worshiping the tree instead of bowing down to the one who made the tree. So if we can just get honest with each other, how many of us, don't raise your hands, how many of us had alcohol or drug problems? Have we ever just conceived it as, as saying, let's say, let's say pot is an issue for me, and I just can't just stop it. I don't want to stop it. And I'm bowing down to this paper, this wrapping paper with a weed inside. And I'm saying, oh, weed, satisfy me. It's, it's, it, I mean, it's ridiculous to describe it like that. How do we do that with a dollar? How many are doing it? Just this, these paper bills. And we're bowing down to them as though they can change our lives or secure a happy future for us. It's so much easier, to, isn't it? It's just so easy to be tempted to bow down to the tree and not the God who made the tree. This is the context for Christmas. And in verse 6, she eats. And she turns and gives it to her husband who was with her the whole time. He was with her and he didn't do anything to protect his wife from the devil's lies. He completely abdicated his leadership role. He submitted to his wife. He ate the fruit. Adam in his role as a husband. Did you ever stop to think of this? Jesus is called the second Adam. What should the first Adam have done when the serpent came knocking on Eve's door? Who should have crushed the serpent's head? Adam should have crushed the serpent's head. That was the call of the husband. That was his mission. 
He was the priest of that garden. He, he was to protect her. Thank God where Adam failed in crushing the serpent's head, someone else has come. He doesn't fail, does he? The second Adam, Jesus Christ. The last Adam, Jesus Christ. He's come and he crushed the serpent's head when he was crucified and rose again. And he's going to put a final end to him soon, we pray. Can I ask guys this? Husbands, how are you doing in protecting your precious wife's heart and mind from believing lies? I don't know that we talk enough about that in our small groups, guys. I don't know if we talk enough about what is my wife reading? What is she believing? What is she dreaming for? What is she hoping? What is she afraid to tell me that she would love to see me address with the Lord? What is she, what lies is she believing? So many times a wife, especially if you add mom into that, so many times a wife is believing I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I live in a world that increasingly shows me these images about how happy everyone else is, but in my house, this is how my kid is doing, and this is how I feel I'm failing. And husbands, are we rising up to be like the Lord Jesus Christ in silencing the lies that our precious wives are tempted to believe? There's a lot to learn here, isn't there? This setting, this backdrop for Christmas. And in his disobedience, Adam is the federal head of the human race. He, he eats the fruit and he causes a domino effect that in Adam, all humanity from that point forward would be born into this world, dead to God, but very much alive to sin and disobedience. Verse 7 and 8 describe the fall now. It's conceived now. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they discovered their diso that disobedience brought death and not delight. They saw they were naked and tried to cover the guilt and shame of their sin by sewing fig leaves together to make loincloths. Guys, just you know, let's be careful. This is not an issue between nudity and wearing clothes. They were naked and unashamed before sin, meaning there was no focus on themselves. That's what that means. There was no focus on themselves. Can you imagine? Your only focus is on the glory of God. How great thou art. That was their theme in glory. That was the, they always had that. It was a daily glory. How great thou art. And oh, my precious bride. Oh, love from God. Love for God. Love for the bride. No consciousness of self. And isn't it good news, guys, that Jesus not only redeems us from sin, he redeems marriage. He redeems marriage so that we can have those heartbeats living and breathing inside of us. The focus was on God and on each other, not on themselves. And now, naked, what are they saying? Focuses no more on God or each other. They're completely consumed with themselves. They're consumed with guilt and with shame and how they're going to deal with all of this to cover it up. Romans 1 says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Romans 3 says they didn't do righteousness. They wouldn't seek after God. They didn't do any good. Their path was ruin and misery, and there was no fear of God in their eyes, starting in the garden. They didn't run to God to confess their sin. They ran away from God, and they tried to cover up their sin with foolish fig leaves. You and I wear fig leaves too. They're just designer fig leaves. We may turn to religion to deal with guilt. How many of you are churchgoers because you're just hoping that if you can do enough religious things, it'll make up for your sin? We may run to pleasure in an attempt to hide from, from the guilt and, and uh, obviousness that we're separated from God or maybe to numb it. Maybe to numb it. I mean, if you know, I'm scrolling. This whole thing about scrolling is so, oh my goodness, we are so easily captivated. And it numbs us. It just numbs us. It's a fig leaf. You may immerse yourself in the busyness of work 
or the mindless scrolling or the condemning uh, to drown out the condemning voice of your guilt. Maybe you fill your days with, with good works in the vain attempt to offset your guilt. It's just sophisticated fig leaves. And it can never take away your guilt. It can never take away your sin. There's the, there's the context. That's why we need Christmas. That's why we need the incarnation. Because without the coming of Jesus, this is our state. This is, this is our future. This is why we can sell. This is why, oh guys, oh, our celebrations should make everything else pale like little whimpers compared to what a believer experiences in celebrating the Son of God incarnate come to save sinners like you and me because that's the context of Christmas. Here's the curse of Christmas. Judgment for sin, and you see that in verses 8 through 19. So God immediately seeks them because we know in Romans 3, the Bible says no one is good and no one seeks for God. So let's, I mean, we're, we want to be students of the whole word. Well, somebody once said, the whole word makes the, a whole Christian. So we want you guys to be well equipped in the knowledge of God and the centrality of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. And so Romans 3 says, no one seeks after God. No one will get saved unless God seeks them. And that's exactly how the first salvation happened. That's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. They didn't, they didn't seek after God. God goes out to them. And he calls Adam by name because he was the one accountable for the spiritual condition of his family. He didn't say, where are y'all? He said, Adam, where are you? So let me ask you this. I tried to read that very carefully. What, what tone do you imagine God? Remember, you're, you're God. You and all of your greatness and glory and love have been exchanged for a lie, a bite of fruit. What would your attitude be? Someone spurned you like that. Well, I don't have to look far. When my boys weren't thankful for me or didn't say, I used to think I was correcting them, but I would get so angry, I would verbally yell at them about, you, that's ungratitude. We will not be ungrateful in this family. Actually, what I was saying was, you're not worshiping me well enough, sons. You need to worship dad better. You need to be more thankful for dad. That would be the attitude that I would think would somehow be coming into this picture. That's not at all the attitude of what God is doing when he calls out Adam by name. In my household, that's what it, if, if I was in trouble, it wouldn't be Billy, it would be Billy Paul. And it would essentially be all judgment all the time. Likelihood, my mom would say, I wish you were never born, or my dad, I had afro. Now I know why my dad let me have an afro. I, you guys, you look at my pictures, you go, you, every one of you would go, why did your dad let you do that? You know, I mean, it's crazy. You know why he did it? Because he had an easy handle to grab me as I got older. And he would grab my afro and he would punch me in the arm. He wouldn't hit me in the face, but he'd hit me in the arm. That's how I view correction. That's how I grew up to understand correction. It wasn't correction. It was rejection. It was condemnation. As we're going to see, God's first going to address the judgment their sin deserves. We're going to talk about that in a second. But his tone is not ending in judgment. He's coming to save you. He's coming to save Adam and Eve. He's coming to save them. His tone is one of love. He he wants his people back. He wants their redemption. It could be more along the lines of a song that we're going to sing here in just a few minutes at the end of our service called, O Come, All You Unfaithful. I saw, I saw a face back there going, what? Here's some lyrics. I put it in your notes. Oh, come. Think of God saying this to Adam and Eve. Think of God saying this to you. Oh, come. All you unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. Come. Know you're not alone. Oh, come. 
bitter and broken, come. With fears unspoken, come. Taste of his perfect love. O come, guilty and hiding ones, there is no need to run. See what your God has done. And then the the crescendo is, Christ is born. Christ is born. I want to just start singing it now. But only Eric can sing in the sermon. He he knows how to do it. I just make you want to go, ah, (laughs) stop the noise. When God comes to the garden and he confronts Adam and Eve, he, he's asking them questions. He's, he didn't need information. It's his kindness. It's his kindness. He's wanting to lead them to repentance. And their confession was sorry. Do not confess your sin the way Adam and Eve supposedly confessed their sin. It, was even, it wasn't even a confession. It was, for sure wasn't repentance. Adam essentially says, yes, I ate, but it was the woman. <laughs> I, I ate, but... It was the woman who gave the fruit to me. Guys, blame is worse than we think. This was another one. There's so many things after you've raised your kids, you go, why did God give us our kids when we were so young? And man, there's other thing. I wish I would have taught them this and that. If we go back to, the, to Genesis, do you know what blame is? Think what Adam is doing. He's essentially saying, God, spare me. Condemn her. That's what blame is. That's, that's the core of it. That's the heart of it. Well, I don't really mean that if I'm blaming something. Well, you know what? Our hearts are so stained by sin that we could even get to a place where we say, if it means I could be spared death, condemn her. That's what he was saying. Can you imagine? Aren't you glad you're never going to hear Jesus say that? Here again, Jesus succeeding where Adam failed. Adam says, that woman, condemn her, save me. Jesus, Jesus says, condemn me, save them. Isn't that, you guys, what a savior, right? What a savior. That's what he's coming to do, to come and to save them, to save them. Adam throws the dig at God. You saw that too. Oh, by the way, you gave her to me, right? Anybody doing that lately? God, this sorrow is going way longer than it reasonably should. I think I've learned my lesson by now, but this, it's, this thorn in the flesh is still with me. That thorn you gave me. So God shifts his role from interrogating the accused to stepping behind the bench as judge. And this is where I say we must first see Christmas as a judgment before we can celebrate it as a joy. He pronounces three judgments. He starts with Satan. Notice he doesn't ask any questions of Satan. It's just judgment for Satan. He's coming to judge, conquer, and defeat Satan. And he says, cursed are you, dust you shall eat. Uh, that was just, that's just this way of pronouncing, you have no hope of victory. Eat dirt. That's where that phrase comes from. Eat dirt. You're defeated. You're never, you, ha- you have no chance. Martin Luther would put it this way. For lo, your doom is sure. <laughs> that's, that's essentially what he, how he would put it. He says, I will put enmity. There's going to be conflict between you and the woman. And then between your offspring and her offspring. Listen, guys, God is not only pronouncing judgment, but there's victory in this. Satan was successful in seducing Adam and Eve and getting them to fall. But he, God is saying, you will not be successful in winning all of mankind to yourself, Satan. That's what you wanted. Let me tell you right now, it's not happening. God is going to be saving people, starting with Adam and Eve. And there are going to be people from every generation who follow him as Lord. This is a declaration of war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And it's a first part of the prophecy of leading into the incarnation and crucifixion. Guys, across the ages, why is evil continuing to go? It's Christmas. Can't we put down our arguments? Can't we? No, there's a war going on. That's why, that's why it's a shame for, well, let's enjoy lights and colors and celebration and food. We ought to celebrate it more than anyone because we know the food and the lights and things are temporary. That's a gift from God for us to enjoy for a moment. The one to enjoy forever is him. 
And so we can celebrate good gifts from the Lord without making them idols. So there's, as, as the Lord's working on this, he's, he's declaring war. There's a war going on that could get us distracted against Jesus being the, the blazing center of our, of our celebration. between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. A terrible conflict has always existed from that time forward. We're either living in the grip of Satan's lies or we're the heirs of redeeming grace and children of God. Which are you? And it happens quickly. Adam's, Adam and Eve's son kills Abel. Offspring of the serpent, offspring of the woman. Noah is mocked and rejected by his generation. Jacob and Esau are in conflict. Ishmael and uh, Isaac and Ishmael are in conflict. Egypt enslaves God's people. God intervenes through the shedding of innocent lamb's blood and the Passover and brings his people out. So that, look what God's doing. My line will continue. My line will continue. God, my, my godly people, my people will continue. The Babylonians against Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar against Daniel, Herod wanting to destroy all the male children under the age of two. Matthew chapter 3, we've got to be able to connect the dots to, to better understand this panorama of the glory of God. John the Baptist is on the banks of the Jordan baptizing these, uh, and, and many of the Pharisees, right, and Sadducees come out to be baptized by him. Remember what John the Baptist said? They were religious elites and they were hypocrites. And John goes directly, he's going back to Genesis 3.15. He calls them, you brood of vipers. I think I for years have just thought, yeah, get them, John. Yeah. Yeah, let's be like that in our preaching. Let's be, let's just tell it like it is. He's quoting scripture. He's quoting scripture. He's not zinging them. Oh, let's zing them and that's going to win them. He's, he's just saying, you're, a, you're an offspring of the serpent. You need to be an offspring of the woman. You need to be an offspring of the woman and the one who would soon come. That's what he's doing. If God, and then, and then Jesus goes and says something similar. Remember when he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God. What does he say to them? But you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Again, this isn't Jesus just being irrelevant in his culture and all this kind of stuff. This was Jesus using the word of God because it's the word of God that cuts to the heart of people. Not my zingers and my masculinity and my... Ugh. It's God's word that is the power of God unto salvation. The whole redemptive storyline is moving from the offspring of the woman to the one specific seed of the woman. The Old Testament is moving us somewhere. It's moving us to the he who would crush the serpent's head. No longer just offspring, not only just believers throughout Old Testament history, it's going to end on a person, a he, who is going to come to actually be the one who's the snake crusher, the serpent crusher. Love to say that. Because I hate snakes. I don't know about you. I hate snakes. And I would never, even if it was a garter snake, I would be afraid to crush its head. I, don't, I probably shouldn't crush its head because I guess it's good for the environment. Or I don't know what it is. But anyway, we're to, we're, we are to be taking a stand because he has come. We're not waiting for the he anymore. He has come. That's going to be our last point this morning. Please, don't think that there's not a war on just because it's December. There's got to be this wartime mindset that we're wearing the armor of God. We're using the sword of the Spirit. We're, we're, we have the helmet of salvation. The breastplate of righteousness is keeping our hearts secure and our identity sure in Christ. And we're sharing the gospel with the world. Judgment does affect the woman and the man. It talks about pain in childbirth, but as, as any parent knows and any mom knows, it's not just labor and delivery. It's, it's, it's a, it's a heart-rending thing to raise kids. There's so many pains involved. 
And it's a temptation for her to desire to have her husband's leadership role. And that was in that passage too. We can't get into it today. But isn't it wonderful that even though a woman figured prominently in the fall, God has caused a woman to figure prominently in redemption. And we're so thankful. Judgment on Adam curses the earth. Work's going to be by the sweat of your brow. It's not only going to be hard, but I think this is, this is not spoken about enough with this text. You're going to be tempted to allow it to be all-consuming. Because it's hard. Because you're looking for an identity. Sometimes it's not in Christ. You're, you're going to be tempted to make your work an idol. And then the temptation for him to harshly rule his wife as a dictator or an abdicator, similar to what Adam did. And then finally, you saw the wages of sin is death. You came from dust, and to dust you will return. So here is in is the judgment that we need to stop and recognize so that we can celebrate the joy of Christmas. And that's the cross. Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 and, verse 15 and 21. God promised that there would be one particular seed of all the amazing men that God used, Moses or David or Elijah or Isaiah, there's amazing, amazing men. But God promised there would be one particular seed who would defeat Satan and deliver God's people from judgment. Because a woman can only contribute an egg toward childbirth and not the seed, the description of this conquering and saving king means that for this to happen, he's going to have to be born of a virgin by a miracle of God in the incarnation of his eternal son, Jesus Christ. So here, in the midst of all of that, here is the first promise of the Messiah. Here is the first declaration of the gospel. He would come through a virgin by a miracle of God. And in that sense, so this, we do this every year, and sometimes, I, I don't know if, if you're newer to us, every year this is going to be something, at least until the Lord takes me where you guys can do something differently. I feel it's just such a conviction that we have the manger and the cross just inseparable in December. Um, because did you notice it was inseparable in Genesis chapter 3? Why, why do we say that? Because he's the seed of the woman, so here's the virgin birth. It's God incarnate in Christ Jesus, and he was bruised on his heel. It's inseparable. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered and died under the hands of Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and he died. He was, his, his heel was bruised. We, we shouldn't separate what God doesn't separate. And from the very beginning, that's the whole story. That's the whole story from the very, very beginning. The Savior would die to satisfy the wrath of God in place of sinners. The Savior would die to bear the curse instead of sinners. The Savior would die to forgive sinners and declare them righteous. The Savior would die and rise again to give a new life of love and for one another to them. Did you know that he saved us so that we could fulfill the great commission and the great commandment? It, and they, they have to go together. It's not just, I'm going to tell you about Jesus while I hate you. It's, I'm going to tell you about Jesus as I love you. And the risen Savior promises a once and for all final defeat of the presence of Satan, the presence of sin, the presence of death, sorrow, suffering, persecution. And he's promising that he's going to come a second time to make all things new. Eric, you want to come? Last little point here is that while, while Eric and Joshua are coming um, is this. You know, there's that one little passage in verse 21 that talks about that, that God said, let's do away with, these, with you trying to cover up your sin. Let me cover up your sin. So many commentators said that really that was the first place where it, it had to have been likely that, that you'd had to have a blood sacrifice. How do you have animal skins if you didn't have a, a substitute die, an innocent substitute die, so you could take those skins and cover Adam and Eve? So now they're, they're, the blood has been shed. The promise of the, the Messiah who would shed his own blood as the Son of God is given. But they're given a covering now that is sufficient. It's, it's, and, it, and it's a covering of someone else's life. 
And isn't that what a Christian has? Don't you have the covering of someone else's life? That's why you can stand without, with, before God without any fear. Because you stand in robes of righteousness that Jesus paid for you to have so that you can be confident in approaching him even on your worst days, even on your most sinful days. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to listen to the, what we're about to sing. O come, all ye unfaithful, come. And if you are a believer, how about this? Let's come, let's, let's come again ourselves. Not to be saved again, but to let the Lord touch a brokenness in your heart or let the Lord come and touch. I want, in fact, I want to invite the prayer team. Would you guys come also? That's Alex, Becky, Phil, and Vanessa. Would you guys come and just be available? Don't wait till the end of the service. While we're singing, if you want somebody to pray for you, that you're, you know this, this Christmas is going to be a tough month for you, come and pray. Come and ask someone, would you, I, want, I want to live on mission this December. I don't want to have just page two of a three-page story. I want, to, I want to celebrate the redeeming and healing love of my Savior Jesus. Would you stand?